Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. You know, when Amazon bought Whole Foods for, I think, 14 or $15 billion, I thought to myself at the time, why would they want to get into the grocery business? It's a low margin, highly intensely competitive uh, business. Why would they want to, you know, kind of get away from their cool tech and home delivery and all that kind of stuff? But they are there. They are sticking with it. And I think they're actually increasing their investments. And that's forcing the industry, the supermarket industry, to respond with their own technology. Matthew Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio to help us break it down. So, Matthew, give us a sense of what the supermarket industry is doing to try to fend off or compete with Amazon. Yeah. Well, they need to do something. I mean, they're in a war of attrition right now and they're losing. And I'm talking about traditional supermarkets, you know, um, places like Kroger, which just uh, earlier this year had to throw out their long-term guidance because they they couldn't get a store remodel right. So you're talking about traditional supermarkets that are getting squeezed and not just by Amazon, by companies like Aldi, this German import, which is very deep discount, what they call hard discounters, where it's a lot of store brands and a very Spartan store experience. But people don't mind if you give them what they want at a price you know uh, that's affordable. They don't need a lot of the bells and whistles. So the grocers are kind of getting it from all sides, the traditional grocery stores. They need to think differently. And so they're looking to technology, some of which Amazon is has already adopted or is adopting as ways to not just, you know, make shoppers go, oh, wow, look at all these funky bells and whistles, but just to sort of get the basics right and solve some operational problems that will hopefully lift those margins that you mentioned that are always so razor thin. You also suggested that perhaps they could hide under a desk in the fetal position, but uh, that might not be <laughs> yeah. the best business Other model. industries have. Other yeah. industries have done yeah. that. And, uh, you know, it, it is a business model that has been adapted, not necessarily successfully. One uh, statistic in your story that I thought was really compelling was that food retailers globally lose about $325 billion a year due to items being out of stock. Is this the type of technological challenge uh, that could just be fixed by having the right program that understands what you have? I mean, I don't want to say fix, but it will certainly help. I mean, what is easier? You know, you've got these days you have to hire people to literally walk down the aisles. It could take hours and take them away from other tasks, let's say, like filling an online order and getting that out to a shopper and and doing something more value added. These robots that we talk about uh, in the story that just sort of meander up and down the aisles, uh, checking for out of stocks, for missing items. Uh, In the company I spoke to, Giant Eagle, which is, you know, a great Pittsburgh uh, Midwestern based uh, retailer, uh, they saw a 21% reduction in out of stocks in the one store where they've had this robot the longest. I got to say, in this this technological revolution that we're um, in, the, the problems that people are discovering and the solutions stock the shelves yeah, yeah. Right? i mean and literally it's you know how much how much money and and how much time can it be uh, just put into the idea of be better yeah, yeah. exactly so matthew can the i'm thinking about you know walking down the aisle of a supermarket and, and seeing that worker with the kind of the price gun to dun, to dun, to dun, you know yeah. kind of are those days can you do that one more time yeah did you like that, <laughs> that sound effect did you are those days 
that just they're still with us. They're still with us. Things like which I didn't even write about, but those robots we mentioned. If you add electronic shelf labels or electronic shelf tags to replace the the sticker gun, um, that can that will benefit uh, even more so the use of those shelf stocking robots when you just have electronic shelf tags. So there's a lot of them, but again, it's slow adoption. A big problem here is that the grocers are very risk averse. They want to do you know what their dad did, their grandfather did. This is the way we've always run this store. Um, you know, this is what's worked in the past. But they, again, they're starting to get a little bit more, you know, adventurous here. It's more than that, though. I mean, a lot of these uh, companies operate on pretty small margins, right? Yeah, uh, this do. is not a, a get-rich-quick kind of business. And you have to make investment in order to succeed yeah. against the Walmarts of the world or the Amazons of the world. So can you sort of give us a sense of how they're doing it, how they're investing, if they're able to invest, given yeah. the overhang of their low-margin exactly. business? Exactly. You're right, Lee. This is not get rich quick. This is not die. This is don't go away. Don't yeah. become the next Sears. Uh, so they're making investments. They keep doing the do dun do 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 Exactly. Okay. You know, Very they have good. to make investments. But on the same time, look at Walmart. They're, they're also paying all of their workers more. You know, they've had to increase just their starting minimum wage. And in many cities, New York included, you know, you're talking about a $15 minimum wage. So they are making investments in their people. But these investments in technology, which are increasing, what they will not make them, though, if they don't get a clear return on investment. That's why a lot of what we're seeing just now is just pilots, a couple of stores here, 20 stores there, figure out what's working, tweak it. So we're not going to see wide scale, universal adoption of a lot of these technologies for probably years. And there have been technologies over the past 20, 25 years that we thought we're going to change the way we shopped. And they haven't because it was a lot of gee whiz stuff that didn't really provide an ROI. So Amazon, again, they uh, I call it dipping their toe with this Whole Foods uh, acquisition, dipping their toe into the supermarket business. Is there any sense that they're going to maybe do more than dip their toe? Yeah, before? I think we've got a foot in there now. Okay. It's more than a toe. Okay. You know, given, you know, it started with Whole Foods, of course, but just in recent weeks, we've had a lot of news from them. They are going to open a traditional, more traditional, lower priced than Whole Foods uh, a grocery chain starting in LA. They have slashed or eliminated the additional fee that they charge for their prime customers to do uh, Amazon Fresh, which is their online service. Essentially saying, if you're a prime customer, now the food delivery is free just as the streaming video is free. So, and they're also uh, planning to take their Amazon Go technology, the cashierless stores we all have heard about, and bring that to bigger stores rather than the tiny ones. What's that smell? It's the smell of burning cash. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you speak. Where yeah. is the make money part? Well, for Amazon, you know, they're making money off the cloud and advertising. Well, but, yeah, but, but not from the, the grocery. Yeah, so that's why, again, we're seeing very selected small pilots, but with the things like the shelf scanning robots. Don't look at it as out of stocks. That's such jargony term. Think of it as lost sales. If the honey bear isn't there on the shelf, you're not getting that sale of honey. If it is there, if the robot tells you it's not there, get, you know, get somebody to get it in the back, you have now gained a sale. That is a sale. That is profit, certainly. So that is what will help these guys, certainly, rather than all these fancy terms like AI and VR and stuff like that. If the honey bear ain't there, the honey bear ain't there. Well, here's here's a revelation for you. I actually enjoy food shopping. But I have to tell you, if if there was an app to say, hey, where is the honey bear? Oh, it's aisle three, row two, you know, 10 steps down. I I actually enjoy looking for most it. Most good retailers will do that. Now, if you have their shopping app and you walk in and a lot of them will allow you to upload your shopping list, 
there will be a map overlaid. Really? It'll know where your location Boy, is, and it'll say the honey bear is here. Um, you know, for, that's what really screws people up. When a store gets remodeled, people are yes. suddenly saying, where is Where's everything? Where's the honey bear? Uh, well, I, will you know. say, I will say one thing I think would be really cool would be an app showing the uh, ex- expiration dates. Of different yeah, things. Well, so that's if you a totally different went, topic. It, you know, the well, sell by, use by, that's we, that's We'll, we'll have to story. continue that. We'll yeah. have to have a full show on the sell by and use by dates. Uh, Matthew Boyle, thank you so much for being with sure, us. That no was a problem. great story. Matt Boyle is a U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Really interesting revolution yeah. underway in the grocery and sector. I'm not sure the industry can keep up. Boy. U.S. shoppers spent a record $9.2 billion on Cyber Monday. That's 17% more than last year. It added to a robust Black Friday, so it seems like the consumer is in good shape as we head into the thick of the holiday sales. To get more color, we welcome Christian Magoon. Christian is the Chief Executive Officer of Amplify ETFs with over $750 million in, uh, under management based in Colorado Springs. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. So, it seems like the consumer is out there spending for the holidays. Yeah, Paul, it's been definitely a, a very good start to the season. Um, we've, we're likely to see record holiday shopping. Um, you know, some forecasts believe that this year will grow about four percent overall in holiday shopping, and actually go from about a nine hundred and seventy billion dollar uh, season last year to a, a, a trillion dollar season this year. So. Very exciting. I think you know, 50-year unemployment, uh, steady wage growth are, are, is really helping the consumer uh, be confident here. Of course, the big area of growth has been online retail. Um, while total sales may be up about 4%, online retail is trending up maybe 15 to 16%. So uh, that's going to be the sweet spot for uh, investors, and we think for uh, those looking for uh, to kind of ride this uh, retail trend, both uh, you know for growth, but also for kind of the trend of going online versus in store. Christian, I'm looking right now at the holdings of iBuy, which is the ETF that you run uh, with about $250 million of assets over uh, under management. I'm just looking Peloton. Is that is that a retail stock? That's your top holding, according to this. That's right. So it's a newly added member of the ETF. And really, the criteria, Lisa, is that a company has to have 70% or more of their revenue coming from online sales. And uh, Peloton fits that, uh, that criteria. Um, you know, most people think of Amazon as being, you know, kind of the primary uh, online retailer. But, you know, Amazon is just one of many. Uh, we've actually had more uh, performance in alpha generated in the last year from companies like Carvana, uh, Shopify, VIP Shop, all those uh, companies up between 130 and 190% this year. Um, you know, iBuy is unique from an online retail ETF because it is not market cap weighted, it's equal weighted. Um, and we do have that revenue test. So we think that you're getting access to a lot of unique names that maybe you don't uh, necessarily uh, know. I think Peloton is one that people know right now, but the Carvanas of the world, VIP Shop, Ocado, uh, those names uh, have a nice impact and have been an alpha driver for the fund, which is a five-star rated Morningstar fund and the number one performer in the consumer cyclical category over 
for the last three years. I will just say, Paul, it's interesting to see what retail, online retail consists of. It consists of food and getting cars to take you places, right? I mean, it's, it's Grubhub, uh, it's getting Lyft, Uber, and then and then when you feel really guilty about not moving around, you go bike and you do Peloton. You go do Peloton, there, right. so they got, got you covered. Hey, Christian, so I know there's a, one less shopping week here for this holiday period relative to last year. What kind of risk is that for some of these retailers and some of the ETFs that track them? Yeah, it definitely is a risk. I mean, we're six days less because the holiday shopping season started later with Thanksgiving being six days later than last year. So, you know, one risk is bad weather, frankly, uh, because we have a compressed uh, time period. And we've actually now seen that a little bit on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. I think you guys experienced it yesterday a little bit. And the interesting stat we're seeing from Adobe Analytics, which really tracks the 100 largest online retailers, is that uh, states that had bad weather, two inches or more of snow, saw an uptick in online retail sales by between uh, you know seven and nine percent. So we're seeing that um, you know brick and mortar kind of face this headline risk of bad weather where people uh, stay in, but it actually turns into a tailwind for online retailers. Um, also, you know this this trade issue is definitely something that could impact some consumer confidence. In the last four months, we've seen it uh, trending downward, still in a very healthy range, but it's something to watch, particularly as we've heard you know President Trump back away from maybe the urgency of doing a trade deal here uh, by the end of the year. Christian, you talked about the good performance of iBuy over the past three years, and certainly the shares of stocks that you have, the shares of companies that you have in your portfolio have done very well, the likes of uh, Expedia or the Etsy, Lyft, Uber, Netflix. That, however, is getting called into question now because of how high the valuations are. And this question of, yes, this is the new model, but perhaps there has been too much capital put into these particular companies. How do you respond to the valuation questions? Well, it's definitely a, a challenge because when you look at maybe the counterparts of brick and mortar, they have very low valuations, but of course, there's a, the risk they're going out of business. So when we look at the um, valuations of these growth companies, you know, their peg ratios are, we think, are still attractive. You know, right now, there's still about 11% market share of online retail as opposed to all retail sales in the U.S. Uh, in China, for example, that's over 20% market share. We think many of these companies are going to double or triple their market share or their sales over the next three to five years as online retail uh, starts to continues to emerge. Right now, going back to 1999, online retail has grown about a 19% average compounded annual growth rate. So when we look at these companies, we actually think that over the next three to five years, if they double or triple their, their sales, that um, these, these valuations will actually look potentially like uh, values. Um, we just think this trend is going to continue. More and more uh, consumers are going to trust uh, going online, whether that's through mobile payments or the convenience, the competitive pricing, or the, incre or the increased selection. So we think this is a global trend that investors can capitalize. And you know, since the fund's been out, it's returned about 90% yeah. over the last three and a half years versus the S&P at about 50%. So right. it's definitely been a place for Alpha, and we think that's going to continue. Christian Magoon, thank you so much for being with us. Christian Magoon, Chief Executive Officer of Amplify ETFs.
It's all about trade today. That's what's sinking stocks, at least if you trust the price action in response to certain headlines. President Trump coming out and saying, who knows, maybe we'll make a deal, maybe we won't. Maybe we don't need to make a deal before the 2020 election and I'll push it back after that. Uh, you're seeing the NASDAQ down 1.2%. Also now we're hearing about taxes on porcelain and French wine and cheese. Joining us now to discuss all things trade, Brendan Murray, who uh, covers the entire area for us here at Bloomberg News. Brendan, can you just paint a scene here on what was driving the escalation that seems to be uh, coming to a fore in some ways today. Uh, the, the, the president and his advisors say that we're, we're inching closer and closer to a deal with China, uh, making it sound like something was imminent and they were going to meet meet this uh, sort of the deadline of December 15th before the U.S. raises more tariffs on Chinese imports. And, and yet the president today kind of stepped back and said, uh, you know, I don't really have a deadline uh, that I'd be fine if this drags out uh, fully uh, all the way through the election of next year. So I think the the stock market reaction is definitely uh, they were that is that investors have been thrown for a loop here, uh, you know, thinking that they were close to a deal. But now uh, this is something that could drag on and on for months and months. Uh, you know, whether this is just a negotiating strategy on Trump's part, uh, the idea being that, you know, the closer you get to deal, the more you the more you act like you don't need it, you don't want it, um, is a whole nother question that uh, you know that that is still remains to be answered. Brent, I just want to take a step away here. This has been just uh, a tariff uh, news cycle here over the last several days. It's not just China. Uh, we had yesterday steel tariff discussions on uh, Argentina and Brazil. Today, it's uh, French wine and cheese. You know, historically, how effective have tariffs been? And has the U.S. been a big wielder of tariffs historically? Uh, not in the recent past. Uh, obviously, the Trump administration changed all that. But tariffs are, are a fairly blunt instrument used mainly as uh, leverage in a negotiation. You threaten them uh, before you actually impose them. So uh, the big difference that we've seen in the Trump administration is that they impose them and then they say, OK, let's negotiate, uh, you know, if you want to if you want us to remove them. So uh, they have traditionally, in the, you know, in the recent in the recent past, the past few decades, you know, uh, countries have, moving, have been moving more and more to lower tariffs. Uh, you know, Trump has come in and, uh, you know, is using them to extract concessions from, from trading partners. The interesting thing about the, the French uh, uh, move that you, that you mentioned is that this could sort of bring the trade war into Europe as a whole. The, the European Union, uh, you know, uh, will, will have a reaction to, to that on France's behalf. And, you know, there's a scenario that, uh, you know, that you can see where things kind of spiral out of control in this sort of tit-for-tat uh, way that, that the U.S.-China trade war has evolved, that, uh, you know, we could wind up with uh, two fairly large showdowns on, uh, you know, two uh, huge continents for uh, huge economic uh, trading partners but of the U.S. Brendan, do you think that the headline is the U.S. And, and Europe are kind of ratcheting up the tensions on both sides of the Atlantic? Or do you think that the headline is it could have been so much worse and President Trump could have been going after the auto sector, for example, uh, in Europe? And, and this is sort of more a negotiating tactic all around as he tries to seem powerful heading into a, a couple of, of tough weeks. Absolutely. The car tariffs that you mentioned, that deadline uh, for the Trump administration to act upon uh, 
uh, came and went without any action. Uh, a lot of uh, people, uh, you know, economists and uh, auto industry experts, have said that you know the, something like that would surely uh, you know send uh, you know some economies like Germany into recessions. Uh, you know, so uh, there was a measure. There is a measured uh, approach, uh, in, in, at least in that way, uh, from the Trump administration. Uh, and you know, in 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 reality, the the, the two point four billion dollars uh, tariffs on two point four billion dollars in French products is it's not a huge amount when you consider uh, you know the tens of billion dollars that the con- that the countries trade between themselves. Brendan, can you briefly describe what the digital service tax is and why it's a big deal to the U.S. government? So this is a three percent tax on the gross revenue of uh, of large tech companies, companies that make over bring in more than seven hundred fifty million dollars in revenue a year. This hits companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon. And France has uh, has enacted that's enacted it this year. They're trying to drive a sort of international move toward toward uh, such a tax, uh, and and the U.S. has has come out against it, saying if we're going to tax if American company is going to be taxed, the U.S. government is going to do that, is going to do that, not the French government. So, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, the Trump administration is 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 acting, uh, you know, to to defend companies that it normally doesn't defend. Right. <laughs> uh, and and you know, and and in, in in this case in particular, you know, they could have gone to the WTO uh, to dispute this uh, this tax. Instead, they're taking the you know the tr- the, the Trump strategy right. of going one on one. Uh, right. You know, so a WTO case could drag on for years and years. So uh, this is this is the the Trump administration strategy is to is to uh, is to fight their own fights. Brenda Murray, thanks again so much uh, for joining us here and bringing us up to date on all things trade. Uh, Brenda covers the trade issue globally for Bloomberg News, joining us uh, from uh, London. And there is a lot for Brendan and his trade team to be working on. Now we have trade discussions, tariff discussions. It seems like in every uh, corner of the world, and it's obviously has made impacts on financial markets. Rates continue to be exceptionally low. The question is, how about 2020? Is it time to start looking at 2020? And what should we expect? To answer that question, there's nobody better than our good friend Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Ira, thanks so much for joining us. So as we think about 2020, is it still a lower rate for longer type of outlook from your perspective? Well, I think in the in the front end and policy rates, I think will continue to remain kind of in the in this area. I don't think that the Fed's likely to do anything, uh, if at all, next year. Um, potentially, they could uh, they could uh, ease policy a little bit if things get really bad on the economic front. But I think that they'll wait until after the election to kind of reassess how things are, um, unless uh, unless you see things like you know negative payroll prints, for example. Um, you know, on on, on the uh, on the the longer term side, so looking at like a ten year rate, I, I think it's pretty clear that when you get these headlines about trade, you wind up, uh, uh, you know, rates wind up rallying. Like today, ten years down eight basis points in yield, um, but you know that goes away, and you wind up with probably a pretty substantial sell off, and you wind up with ten um, year yields up closer to two and a quarter instead of where they are now. So, so I think a lot of this is very predicated on uh, kind of the balance of uncertainties remaining uh, remaining negative. But if you get rid of some of those uncertainties, and you know the market can kind of take off. Uh, Troy Gajewski of uh, Skybridge Capital is on 
Bloomberg Radio earlier. And we were noting that, yes, the market was down ahead of the open, but not down by as much as you would expect if President Trump, say, in the summer had been saying, you know what? All tariffs are a go. Who knows if we're even going to get a deal this year or next year for that matter? There seems to be a buffer, and he was saying that comes in the form of the Fed increasing its balance sheet about $300 billion since the end of August. How big of a support is that to valuations, uh, certainly in bonds? Yeah, well, well, it helps a, a little bit. I mean, you know, remember they're buying mostly um, they're buying mostly short end uh, uh, debt, so they're buying mainly T bills, which you know don't have really a lot of market risk. So, um, so yes, it's helpful a little bit, but it's not as meaningful as if they were g- going out and buying a whole lot of uh, you know five, ten, and thirty year bonds. Well, but but um, that said, it actually dampens volatility, which is a proven uh, risk. Uh, encourager, right? I mean, basically, well, the lower the, the the volatility, the more people will be inclined to buy stocks and buy junk bonds and, and go into risk. Well, I think I think it is a little bit more of a risk on because by buying uh, by by buying T bills, they're effectively increasing the um, they're increasing uh, bank reserves, which which does encourage some risk taking. Um, but but that's not what's helping keep ten year yields low, right? So so there's a difference between you know how this might be helping risk assets versus how it might be um, supporting or not. Supporting Supporting uh, things like ten-year treasuries and and, and the like, um, so I, I think the the thing that uh, ec- economic fundamentals I think are, matter much more to the long end of the curve. And what you see is when you see uncertainty and you see heightened uncertainty, you're going to wind up with um, it, r- regardless of what happens to say the equity market. The equity market might go up a little bit under the idea that the Fed's going to ease, that interest rates are going to be low, and and that might be supportive of valuations in some risk assets. But on the other side, the, the reason why that's happening is because you have the expectation for low inflation, for uh, for low and and stable uh, growth, low but yet stable growth, that will keep bond yields very low. So, because um, when you look at things like real yields, so the that's the yield on on tips and and the yield that investors are demanding above inflation, you're only looking at that being 10 basis points over the next 10 years. So people don't think that there's going to be a lot of volatility or particularly fast growth where you would expect there to be a lot more risk in things like uh, inflation and inflation expectations that you demand a higher premium for that. And, and you don't see that. So as long as that remains very low, which I think is what the trade tensions do, um, you're going to wind up seeing low bond yields. But again, like that can go away in a heartbeat and you can wind up with a 50 basis point sell-off uh, in a hurry if that uncertainty goes away. Ira, 2020 is a presidential election year. In your experience, has there been increased volatility or how has the bond market typically done in presidential election years? Yeah, so so the, the, during presidential elections, the the only time that you saw a major move after an election was really after Donald Trump's election in 2016. You go back, um, you go back to the prior 30 years, so the prior six elections, and you you really did not have significant market reaction one way or the other. It tended to be whatever the trend was going into that, based on economic fundamentals, is what continued uh, to drive the bond market. Uh, but 2016, you know that that was a significant change, and you know this this year maybe you could see something similar. Or if you got a, had a candidate win that you know was going to either uh, you know change policy quite significantly, and you know we'd have to see who that was before you can make a guess as to which direction the bond market would move. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey uh, covers all things interest rates for us as chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.